Psalm 107. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low, through oppression, evil and sorrow, He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As it was mentioned earlier, we are planning, we're beginning a new series Uh, this evening that's intended to take us through the whole of Psalm 107, which is why we read the whole thing tonight, just to begin. Um, I want to focus only on the first few verses this evening. I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, that the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands and from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. We want to focus there, but before we get into the substance of what we're thinking about this evening, just want to begin a step back from that and consider why, why a psalm? What are the psalms good for? Why, why should we pay attention to the psalms? And I want to offer you a few reasons. Um, the first is just that I think the psalms of all places in the scriptures have the ability to um, speak to and resonate with the heart um, and resonate with the heart of the Christian who's wanting to relate to God. We are, I'm sure you're aware of this, to a huge extent, that we are very complex 
beings, aren't we? With such a challenge in just understanding ourselves, and even more of a challenge in giving expression and language to um, things of the heart and what's going on inside us. I think it's hard, isn't it, for all of us to understand our own confusions, conflicting desires, and uh, understand the inclinations and motivations of the heart. Well, the Psalms give language to what's going on inside us, language that's transcended centuries and millennia, and which resonates as much with us as it did for when they were originally written. And uh, they, they speak to you in different ways. You can find among the Psalms different places that are kind of favorite Psalms, or Psalms that, that really grab you in different ways. Just an example of that for me, um, just speaking personally, is that every Sunday when I'm getting ready in the morning, I get up a little bit earlier on Sundays, actually not that much earlier, but I get up, and um, I get up and spend a few hours getting ready to preach that day. And one of the things that you know, I, I feel is partly a sense of great inadequacy, always, because of the weight, weight of what I feel that it is what we're doing when we're coming to worship God and open his word. There's a sense of inadequacy, and there's also a sense of needing to feel um, engaged with Jesus and have my heart aligned rightly before I come here and stand up in front of you. So for me, I might turn to Psalm 45, and often do, and where the words just begin, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme, I address my verses to the king, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And the picture of somebody who's ready to speak God's words and to listen to God at the same time. And then it starts to pour out an adoration to Jesus, essentially. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. And it continues in adoration of who Jesus is. And I found that there's nothing more helpful than to sort of get in front of a psalm like this one and make sure my spirit is aligned that this is about Jesus, that we're worshipping him today. And you need, you need one of these poems or these songs in some times in your life to, to speak to your own heart and bring from your heart, elicit from your heart the right feelings, the right emotions, the right motives so that you can worship God. That's one thing. Here's another. I think the Psalms speak to all of life's circumstances. So if we are complex beings, life itself is complicated also, isn't it? And in your day-to-day existence, you face so much that confuses, that sometimes seems overwhelming, that sometimes seems uh, uh, puzzling and difficult to, to think through and overcome and know how to respond to. And what you discover when you read the Psalms and the more familiar you are with them, what you discover is that they, they, there, is no expre- there is no part of life that doesn't find expression in the Psalms. No, everything from joy to grief and everything in between has its psalm and its song. And in that sense, they can be incredibly helpful because if you're anything like me, there are times when you're facing perplexing circumstances and what makes it worse is the suspicion that nobody understands what you're going through. And yet here, when you read the psalm, sometimes there are psalms here that, that read your own life circumstances better than you could describe them yourself and show you that the troubles that we face are not new. They were around 3,000 years ago when these were being put together. They might look different on the surface, but at the heart of things, things don't really change that much, do they? So they speak to the heart, but they also speak to all of life's circumstances. I think it's one of the reasons, by the way, that I want to work through Psalm 107 because it paints the picture of the kind of circumstances you could be facing. And here's my final reason why Psalms is... They teach you to relate to God. Could anything be more important than that? Than that you learn how to relate to God. And yet it seems to me that if there's one common complaint that I well, experience in my own life, but also in the lives of Christians all the time, it's that so many of us feel there's an inadequacy to our, our prayer lives in particular and our ability to relate to God. I very rarely meet a Christian who feels a sense of satisfaction in in their prayer life and in their personal devotions to God. And one of the reasons for that, undoubtedly, is our ignorance of the prayers and songs which God himself has given to us in 
his songbook, the Psalms. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there, is, there are denominations of the church, and I think particularly the Scottish Presbyterians, uh, who kind of faded away in the recent decades and over the last century, really. But once upon a time, were strong. Um, John Knox was the champion of the Scottish Presbyterians at the time of the Reformation. And one of the things that, one of their core convictions was that worship should consist entirely and exclusively of singing psalms, and usually without any kind of musical accompaniment as well. But what it meant in practice was that by the time you were 10, 11, 12 years of age, if you'd been going to church all your life, you knew the psalms off by heart. I have a friend in Northern Ireland who grew up in a, a covenanter's uh, denomination, and she uh, knows all, all the psalms pretty much inside out, because this is the background she grew up in. And they teach you how to pray. They teach you how to relate to God. In the early centuries of the church, you couldn't be a bishop unless you'd memorized the psalms off by heart. You had to know all 150 word for word, and that was one of the things that would qualify you for being a bishop in the church. There's a reason why they've had that pride of place in Christian devotion, in, in intimacy with God through the running centuries. And so as we bring our focus down to this particular psalm, why this psalm in particular? Why are we looking at Psalm 107 and taking a few weeks to go through it? And I want to give you this answer, that this psalm, perhaps more than any other, speaks about God as a redeemer or as a rescuer. And the reality is that at any given moment, there are people in our church, people passing through in our community who are facing struggles and troubles that they do not know how to overcome. And this psalm paints the pictures of different kinds of life circumstances and situations. You may have noticed as we go through, there were these people and they were struggling in this way, and then there were these people and they're struggling in this way. And through all of them, they experienced God's redeeming power, which tells us that God can lift you out of whatever it is you're going through. But they have to reach a point of breaking before they discover God as redeemer and as rescuer. Why is that? Well, well, we'll think about that in the coming weeks. But it seems to me that the reason God has to break us before we will cry out to him is because of our pride, essentially. Very few of us are born with a natural longing to surrender our lives to God, are we? And often it is only through life's worst circumstances, which you may either be going through now or you certainly will at some point in the future, that you experience the kind of breaking which humbles you enough that you can do what it describes in this psalm. Then they cried to the Lord in their distress, and he heard them. We need to be broken before we'll cry to him, and my hope, my prayer, is that God is going to be rescuing people through this psalm. That it's going to resonate with us. Now, this evening, what I want to do as I mentioned, is focus on these first few verses of the psalm. They'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And I want to begin by asking the question which I think these verses answer, which is this, what is a Christian? Or more specifically, what, what is the mark of genuine, authentic, and sincere faith? And I think it's such a, an important question because so many people pass through uh, the doors of the church, engage with the life of, of, of the church and of Christians and indeed of our own church who have not got an authentic faith, who maybe have never come to know God personally or in a real way. And so we need to begin with this question before we ask any other because this is the picture. As the psalmist begins to unfold this worship song to God, It's as though you can imagine a great throng of people gathered together. And the one thing that he can say in common that they all have that marks them all is this, that they are worshippers of God. That's the essential thing. He addresses them and says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, let the redeemed say so. So here's the essential thing. He says, all of us gathered have this in common, that we're worshippers. We actually all came from very, very different backgrounds. We all came from very different life experiences. Some wandered, he said, in desert wastes. Some were in prison, in irons, and captive in bondage. Others were on the seas in trouble. He says, all of us came from very, very different 
different life experiences, even different places. He says they were gathered in from the lands. But something has bound us all together. That something has drawn us into the center and what now binds us together, what describes us, what captures who we now are and what ought to describe what you have become is that you're now a worshiper rather than someone who doesn't worship. If I put it in other language, you can think of it like this. That you now have a living relationship with God. That there is... In you something authentic, that you know God personally, that you relate to him, that you love him, that you adore him, that your heart wants to give voice to that. Now, of course, I'm not just talking about sung and spoken praise when I describe us as worshippers. Romans 12 is clear that there's the all of life aspect to what it means to become a worshipper. Do you remember how... um, Paul puts it at the beginning of Romans 12. He says, if I can find the page. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, a Christian is to be a little bit like one of those sticks of rock that you get from um, Brighton Beach or Blackpool Beach. If anyone goes on holidaying in Blackpool, um, what you discover is that you can buy sticks of rock and it's written across the rock, this stick of sugar, Blackpool, very clearly readable, usually. And then if you break it at any point through the stick of candy, you'll discover the same word written there. And the same should be true of you. That if we were to look at your life and, and, and dissect you at any point, let's say we look at you in your work environment or in the way you relate to your friends or in your Um, in your romantic life or in your personal and private life, wherever we dissect you, the most important thing about you that's evident not only externally but internally is that you're a worshiper, that your life is lived for God. There's something very real about that, that you engage with him in the day-to-day, that there's no part of your life that isn't touched by this reality of what you've become. But to say that it's about more than singing does not mean it's less. I think that the Christian also is somebody who who has to give voice to their love for God. I think it's a troubling trend in some parts of Christianity where sung worship, gathered worship, is more of a performance from the stage with very little singing going on in the seats. Because the reality is that if you love Jesus, you have to sing. Your heart has to give voice to words, to what he says here. I'll give thanks to the Lord, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So there's the mark. Of course, this is why God saved us in the first place. He wants us to be those who love him. And there is this flow of praise to him. You become a worshiper. Now I want to stress this to you because I think that it's possible to be somebody who's actually mistaken about your, your Christian life. It's not just possible, but it's also a tragedy when it's true. I'm going to paint a picture of a few kinds of people who maybe think they're Christians, but in the biblical sense are not. The first are those whose whole lives, whose lives are marked by, whose Christian lives, I should say, are marked more by duty than anything else. So you could describe this as obedience without relationship. There are many people who go through the Christian life with a great sense of what the right Christian conduct is. They're driven by an ought. They're driven by a compelling sense of what it means to live the Christian life. And it's kind of forehead screwed up, hands clenched, teeth gritted, determined to do the right things. And of course, you never question with that kind of person that there's a sincerity to them. There can be a deep sincerity about the way you're going about your life. But the problem is when it is joyless and loveless. And it seems to me that it's possible to actually be lying to yourself or to, to be engaging in, in some kind of self-deception here that you... 
you think that because you are dutiful towards God, that you're in his family, when the Bible says, no, no, that the greatest mark of you, of the, of the true believer is that your, your heart is inflamed with a love for God. You are passionately devoted to him. It's not just duty. Duty is secondary, really, in the Christian life. In many ways, you, when somebody becomes a Christian, you don't really have to exhort them towards obedience. You don't really need to tell them what to do because it almost becomes automatic by the power of the Spirit that they want to live a godly life. They want to change. They want to live the life that that is worthy of the God who saved them because it flows from the heart. Their heart is engaged with God first and foremost. Don't mishear me. I know that all of us go through seasons in life when our hearts are less passionate for God than they have been. And it can dim and you have to stoke up that, that love for him is, you remember that letter to, that Jesus wrote to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation where he says that you've gone lukewarm. And he says to the Ephesian church, remember the love that you had at first. So I grant that many of you can be genuinely walking with Jesus, but your, 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 your desire in any given day can fluctuate. I recognize that. But my concern is for those who've never experienced what it means to love God from the heart. It can be those whose lives are marked by, firstly, duty. Here's another type of person. There are those whose lives are marked by, by knowledge. I think this is actually increasingly rare in our context. Um, but certainly can be true of some. Where it's really belief without relationship. I think this is a particular danger for those who grew up um, with a familiarity with the, with the Bible and with the things of God and with the, with the church and all these kinds of things. That you may think... That to be a Christian, especially to be mature in your Christian faith, is about the accumulation of, of learning and of knowledge. Now, of course, I, I don't want to set up a false dichotomy here. I think that the Bible shows us that to love God is to desire to grow in your knowledge of him and his ways. Just as you experience what it is to be known by him. That should be the craving of the Christian heart. You want to know him. You want to know his ways. You want to study his word. That You could say, as one of the other Psalms does, that my heart delights in your word. I recognize that. And of course, some of the greatest believers in history are those whose whole minds and hearts have been bent towards dedication to the study of the things of God. You think about how Paul was put on trial in the end of the book of Acts. And he was taken from one court to another. And one of the, when he stood before one particular governor and he's giving a, a defense for his faith, the governor stops him and says, Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. So he recognizes here that here's a man whose whole mind has been dedicated to, to God and the things of God. So I recognize that. I understand that. I think that's absolutely critical for growth in the Christian life. But here's the danger. And it's something which the Bible shows us in a number of places. The danger is that you can think that knowledge is enough. One example of this is in John 5 when Jesus is speaking to some of his contemporaries. And he says to them, really a very, very searching criticism. He says, you search the scriptures. So they knew the Old Testament inside out. He says, you search the scriptures. You're de- dedicated to, to the knowledge of the word of God, in other words. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's describing this great danger that you can be a person whose whose mind is full of the right knowledge. But the ironic thing that was going on with them was that in modern expression, is that you miss the wood for the trees, that you can, you can be so full of the knowledge of the things of God that you miss the central thing, which is that you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is your life. So there are those whose lives are marked by duty, those whose lives are marked by knowledge. Here's a third thing. There are those who, whose lives are marked by a kind of insincerity. In other words, that the appearance of, of genuine faith or of being a worshiper even, but without the substance, without the relationship underneath it. And I think it's, it's possible for any of us to do this. 
You can have the appearance of being a worshipper much easier than, than the reality, can't you? And I recognize that this can be a temptation for any of us just on any given week if we can come to church. And it's very easy to, to play the part, isn't it? It's very easy to, to go through the motions, to look like the worshipper. And the question always is, is whether there is a sincerity to that. Because God is looking at the heart. And I think of all the things I've described, this is the most dangerous place for any person to be in. Because it is an engaging with a kind of active deception. You can become accustomed to a kind of duplicity in your life. This is why Jesus, again speaking to his contemporaries, he quotes the book of Isaiah, Matthew 15. This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. Now, when you think about this, when the call goes out at the beginning of Psalm 107, I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever, that the redeemed of the Lord say so. The mark of the true Christian here is this passionate, genuine, authentic worship. It's not manufactured, it's not forced. It's not faked, it's not dutiful, it's not head only, it's your entire being wanting to give praise to God. That's the real test of whether somebody loves Jesus. I think one way you can think about this, and certainly this helps in the context of the psalm, is that really you know what you are when you go through the worst experiences of life. That's when you really see what you are in your essence, I think. It's like you're squeezed and what comes out of you is the real you. One of the things that you see, for example, in the book of Acts, is as the believers are going about their work for Jesus, you see men and women suffering for him at times. There are a few places where in the midst of their suffering, what what erupts from their life, even when they're under great challenge, great hardship, great difficulty, is worship. Because they cannot, you cannot hide what you really are. And you cannot fake it when you're suffering. I think about somewhere like Acts 7. You remember Stephen, the first martyr in the church. He was stood before his critics and he would basically preach a sermon to them. A defense, but also he opened up the scriptures. He told them why he believed that Jesus is the son of God. And as he's explaining to them, carefully reasoning from his knowledge of, of the word of God, it reaches the point where they reach a seething, bubbling over level of anger with him and they begin to stone him to death. And it's hard, I, I think it's hard for us to understand how utterly brutal this must have been. To die at the hand of people lobbing rocks at you. But as he is being stoned, you see who he is just coming out. It tells us that his face shone like an angel. And then it says, he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's it, isn't it? When you are really in a corner, when you're really struggling in life, very few are going to experience what Stephen experienced. But what happens in that moment? You look at him, his face, he gazes into heaven. He's looking for Jesus. He's looking to Jesus. He wants to know Jesus. He wants to, be, he wants to relate to Jesus even in his suffering. The same is true of, of Paul and Silas in Acts 16. They are <clears throat> they're in Philippi. They've been preaching about Jesus in this Greek city where there are very few believers, just a few have come to know, or are about to come to know Jesus actually. But they're arrested and they're, they're put in jail. They're thrown into prison. And it says that they were put into the inner prison and fastened in stocks. I've never spent the night in stocks, but I imagine it is incredibly uncomfortable 
and frustrating. For most of us, if you're in that situation, your instinctive reaction would be a sense of anger, a sense of injustice, a sense of seizing frustration. There's all kinds of ways we'd react to the situation, aren't there? But you look at Paul and Silas, it tells us in Acts 16 that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were keeping the whole prison awake with their worship. Because this is who they are. You can't, you can't hide it, they can't fake it. This is the real them. And it comes out in their worst moments, in their most difficult moments. You put them in stocks and in prison, what happens to them? Worship erupts. They can't help themselves. They've got to keep the prison awake. As frustrating as it must have been. I think this is it, friends. This is the thing which is true of every believer as they're gathered to, to worship together with this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Let's come together because this is what we are in our essence. We're worshipers. I want to ask you, is it true of you? Are you at the root of things when all said and done? When you strip away all your achievements, and you look through all your suffering and all that kind of stuff, are you basically a worshipper? Is that what you are? It's the most important question you could ask yourself. You were made for worship. You were made to know God. Let me ask another question then. If that's the mark of, the, of what, a, what a Christian is, how does God turn us into worshippers? I think this psalm, these first few verses answer that question in summary form before they tell the stories again and again throughout the rest of the psalm. And really I just need to say before we answer this, this is not something you can create. If you look at your life and you think, well, I, I'm not sure that I have a living relationship with God. I'm not sure that my heart does burst out with joy when I think about him and I have gratitude overflowing and spoken and sung worship. I'm not sure that that's me. I'll just say to you, I don't think there's something you can create in yourself. It seems to me that when we look at what, how God does it in us, it's very much his action in your life. He has to move towards you and change you. But here are a few of the ways that he seems to do that. What it is that he does in us to change us into worshippers. Let me show you a few things from the beginning of this psalm. The first is this. That you, some profound way you experience the love of God. It's how it begins. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I use that word experience very deliberately. Because it, we're not talking here just about, as I've already stated, the, kind of just the intellectual knowledge that God is love and that God loves us. Because you can know that and remain cold, can't you? It's something more than that. The word that's used here in Psalm 107 is the Hebrew word hesed. And it's a word which, better than any other, perhaps captures the kind and quality of the love of God towards us. It's his covenant love. And it's used 244 times in the Old Testament, but 126 of those times it's used in the book of Psalms. It should give you a window into what the, the essence of what it means to relate to God, what it's really about to relate to God personally. Because this is, this is the songbook. This is the prayer book of the church. And all through it, more than half the uses of this word in the, in the whole of the Old Testament are packed into this book. Because if there's one word that captures what your relationship with God ought to be characterized by, it's this word love, this word hesed, this covenant love that's both received and then returned. If it's true in the Old Testament, it's much more true in the New, isn't it? In Romans 5, which you might want to turn to, it's on page 1648. Um, in Romans 5, 5, Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The old translations used to put it that his love has been shed abroad in our hearts. What he's describing here is that Nobody becomes a Christian unless they have in some way experienced the love of God in some overwhelmingly true and experiential way. It's like sunshine that can fill a cold and dark room or like liquid that's poured into a vessel. The love of God 
has flooded the life of those who know Jesus. What kind of love is it? Look at how he goes on in Romans 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's love. It's got these marks. It's uninvited. He loved you before you loved him. You didn't... You didn't Go searching for God, first of all. He went searching for you. It's uninvited. It's undeserved. That's what Paul's trying to labor this point when he says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which is, of course, the greatest evidence of God's love was the gift of his son on the cross. It's totally undeserved because it was when we were still sinners. Which, which brings us on to this other feature, that it is also unconditional. And here's how the logic works. If God loved you because you were lovely, because there was something so adorable and lovable about you, then the danger, of course, is that his love would be conditioned on, on you remaining lovable and adorable. You think about how so often modern romantic relationships, this is the modern understanding of how love works. It's, it's very much the case that it's, it, it, it is much more built these days upon the feeling rather than the commitment. And certainly most people don't understand love to be an unconditional thing. This is why it gives birth to so much insecurity in relationships. And that, that then leads to things like plastic surgery and the, the need for fuller lips and bigger boobs and all the rest of it. Because you think, well, if, I, if my... If my beauty changes, then the love will, will disappear. Because the love was always based on my loveliness. But here's the thing. When, when the Bible describes the love of God towards us, it says it was never based on you being a lovely person in the first place. It wasn't, that's not how it started. Which means that you can't lose it by your unworthiness, by your unloveliness. Because he loved you while we were still sinners. That's what it means when we talk about the unconditional love of God. It was never based on your worthiness in the first place. There's nothing you can do to escape that love. And it's unfading. It is unfading because he says this steadfast love endures forever. And I want to ask you, are you aware that you have experienced the love of God in this way in your life? Has his love washed over you? Have you become aware of his, his love that, that melts your heart so that you can love him in return? Because it always happens in that direction. It's always that you experience the love of God first and then he turns you into a lover of God. I think this is what the psalm's telling us. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Anyone who's experienced that is a worshiper. Here's another thing. Your sense of, of who you are, the story you understand about yourself, centers on, is built on, is founded on this central aspect that you are a redeemed person. That's the most important thing about you. He says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And it's as though he could almost like capitalize it, couldn't he? That as he's addressing people in the crowd, he's saying, okay, those of you who understand yourself to be the redeemed, now join me as we worship God. And it's, like, it's almost like a name or a label you could wear on your life. You could almost tattoo it on your heart. This is what I am, this is who I am, I'm the redeemed. And I want to stress, I think that this is a central, this is how you, a central aspect of how you come to understand yourself when you belong to God. Because there's all kinds of ways that we understand our personal narrative, aren't there? You think about the way you introduce yourself to somebody at a party. Typically, it's to do with what you do for a living. But it's very important how you introduce yourself because it says how you understand yourself. It says what you think is important about you. Or imagine it another way. If you were, if you were to go to a psychiatrist's room and be laid out on one of those psychiatrist's couches, I think the theory is that as you relax, the psychiatrist, you can't see them face to face, 
the real stuff, the authentic stuff, will start to come out. And you start to talk about your life and experiences with just gentle, probing questions. And what would come out of you in those moments would be the things that you are most central to your understanding of who you are, your self-understanding, the narrative that you believe about your own life. Some of it will be wonderful, positive things. You might speak about your ambition and your achievements and your success in life. Some of it would be a window into the brokenness that you feel, that maybe you were the child of divorced parents or that you have experienced some kind of rejection or abuse in life or failure, successive failures. Whatever it is that would tumble out of your lips if you were put into that environment would be the things that you believe are most true about you, the things that the stories you, you, you believe about yourself that are most central to your existence. And I think that for the Christian, whilst none of that is irrelevant, and all of it's important, it seems to me that the Christian is somebody who most fundamentally understands himself by this label, that they are the redeemed, that they're rescued. And that defines everything else about your life, actually. It comes to be the all-important truth about you. I'm a rescued person. That's what the whole psalm is about. And it keeps speaking about God in this language of being the redeemer. In the Old Testament laws, there, were, there was the provision that if you were either caught in debt or in slavery, or most commonly debt that led to slavery, where you had to sell yourself in order to avoid starvation, that somebody called a kinsman redeemer, a, rel- a relative who would be a redeemer in your life, could come along and pay the debt you owe and purchase you out of slavery. This is a technical title. They were your kinsman redeemer. Whether it's an uncle or a cousin or someone like that. And what the psalmist is doing is he's saying, this is the picture of what it means to belong to God. That we we were in some kind of debt that we could not pay. It's the debt of sin. And we were in slavery as a result. We were caught in the enemy's grip. In fact, where it says that the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he is redeemed from trouble, the more literal translation of that word trouble is redeemed from the enemy's hand, the enemy's grip. That he had a death grip on you. And yet the rescuer, the God who redeems, the redeeming God, has come along and he's paid your debt. And isn't this what we believe about what the blood of Jesus shed on the cross means at its heart that it was the most costly blood in the universe poured out paid laid down as a payment for your debt and for my debt to purchase us out of slavery to our sins and the Christian is someone for whom that above all below all through all is the most important thing about you It's what gives you joy when you wake up in the morning. It's what redefines your life, your success, your failures. All of it has to be put into the light of this great truth. It's what summons from your heart endless worship. And it doesn't lose its luster or its glory over the years. It doesn't develop a a patina where it becomes dull. This obsession with the wonder of the cross and of what Jesus has done for us does not grow dim. You remember how the hymn puts it, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I don't want to give you the impression that I think that to be with God in eternity is to be in an endless sing-along. I don't think that's quite what the, psalm, what the song means. But it does mean this, that you will always want to give praise to God for the death of his son. It's there in the book of Revelation. As the living creatures gather around the throne and the lamb is pictured as being, looking as, as, though, as though he had been slain. And the song begins to come out. It says, worthy, worthy, worthy as the lamb who has been slain. 
It's my conviction that in eternity, our sense of being the redeemed will not diminish as we leave the world and its sufferings behind. It will actually intensify as we explore the depths of the love of God shown to us in the gift of his son, Jesus. This is how God turns you into a worshiper. You can't take this for granted. The fact that you are redeemed is the most important thing about you. And here's the last thing I think I want to say about this. How does God turn you into a worshiper? You have a sense, you have a feeling, you have an awareness that you have been brought home when you're with God's people and in his family. He says in the third verse about these, those who he's addressing, he says, you're the ones who are gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And there's this image that where we were scattered. The book of 1 Peter describes us as being those who, you know, were not a people. We had no sort of sense of common identity, no sense of belonging, no sense of, of being uh, united in any way because we're all from different nations and backgrounds and the church of God globally just emphasizes that all the more. But, but this, but when God takes you as an individual... He knits you into his family so that being in his family is now home for you. What's home? Home is is the place where you you feel most yourself. There's no pretense. You can wear your slippers. You don't have to wear any makeup. It's just the guys. (laughs) There's peace. There's rest. There's relaxation. In contrast to other places where there's expectation, where there's risk, where there's danger, where there's etiquette, where there's competition, home is where all of that's left behind. And I think this is one of the things that marks you when you're a Christian, is that suddenly you may have felt like you were on the outside looking in. But when God brings you into his family, you feel more at home with his people than anywhere else on earth. And not only more yourself with his people, but also with God himself. You ever seen that famous picture of the president? I forget which one, but whose son was hiding under the desk when this official photograph was taken. And that's the image of us when we are brought into God's family. It's the most natural thing in the world to want to approach God. Because you've been gathered in, and you've been chosen, you've been called, and you've been renamed, and you've been cleaned up, and you belong. You belong. This is why you have to worship. You can't be cold-hearted. You can't be lukewarm. Your heart's on fire, because you know, this is where I belong. I'm with God's people in God's house, and I have to worship him. So I just want to ask you, when you look at your own life, you examine your heart in light of the things that we've been saying today and the way that the psalmist describes us, do you see in yourself that you are a sincere and passionate worshipper? That you're aware of the love of God, that it's something that you've experienced for yourself, that you, you would say that you're, being redeemed is the most important thing about you and that home is where God is, where God's people are. If it's you... I only want to exhort you, let's worship God even more passionately. I'd love for our church to just become more and more marked by our zeal in the way we worship God. I don't just mean, of course, how we worship on Sundays. I mean in every part of our lives. It ought to be true of you that as we go out into the world and as you go to be with your friends and family and your desks, the one thing people find is irritatingly irrepressible about you is that you love Jesus and you can't stop talking about him. But if it's not you, if you, if you couldn't look at yourself and say, well, I, I know what it really is to be a worshiper, it could be for a number of reasons. One is just that maybe you have wondered. Maybe you knew what it was once upon a time. You felt that there was once a time in your life when, when your heart was... Engaged with God in a sincere way. You knew him. But you've wandered away. 
and you made a series of bad decisions and you recognize that you're far from home. And I want to encourage you, you know, you can come back at any point. In fact, even the fact that you're here is probably a mark that Jesus has been going looking for you. Because that's what he says he does. So as the sheep wanders, the shepherd goes running. The coin gets lost, we sweep the whole house and find the coin. That's what Jesus is like. He's looking for you. But maybe you've just never, never known what it is to love God in this way. And because you've never really been saved. You've never really become part of his family. Maybe in the coming weeks you're going to discover how that can happen. Maybe it could happen tonight. But the thing that the psalm keeps telling us is it says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. There comes a point in the life of everybody who becomes a Christian when you think, I know I have to give my life to God. Sometimes it's in a rush of adrenaline. Sometimes it's in just a common sense moment where you just think, well, this just makes sense to me. God's real. Jesus died on the cross. How could I not, how could I not live for him anymore? And friend, however it happens for you, I want to encourage you, do something. Pray. Reach out. Do as the psalm says, that he cried to the Lord in their distress. And experience what it is for the first time to be in God's family and to become a worshiper. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that you've called us to be your own. And Lord, that we have experienced more goodness than we could ever deserve. That, Lord, you've replaced fear with confidence. You've replaced anxiety with peace and trust. You've replaced guilt with a sense of being clean and of being belonging to you. Lord, all the mess of our lives begins to get sorted out and tidied up by your great power when we come to you. And, Father, we thank you that we're yours. I want to pray, Lord. My prayer is that as we start to work our way through this psalm and its penetrating descriptions of where we are at in our lives, Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring, will bring a reviving power to our hearts, Lord, to awaken us, to turn us into worshipers, to summons people back to you, to bring people to that point where they have to cry out to the Lord in their distress because they know that they cannot, in their pride, hold out against you any longer. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you teach us what it is to be on our knees before you, even on our faces before you, and to adore you, to worship you, because of your worthiness, Lord. Even tonight, Lord, I pray you will change lives. In your precious name we ask it, Lord. Amen. Amen.